That was, that was great. Um, thank you to everybody for your prayers for Sarah. She's doing awesome. Surgery went smoothly. Uh, the doctor actually affirmed when he got into her ankle that it was the right move for the replacement, which I think gave Sarah peace uh, that um, she wasn't 100% convinced going into it that it was the right thing to do, but it was, it was just really nice and gracious of God to give us that uh, affirmation as she, she got in. So she's on the couch healing with my mother-in-law right now. She's in good hands, uh, but thanks for your prayers. Um, it's probably generally a good principle in general to uh, think of Sarah when you think of me. It's, it's, way, it's, way, it's way better than just, uh, just focusing on me. So um, that said, this morning uh, I get to continue our study through uh, the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. And so uh, the last couple of weeks we've gone through uh, Ecclesiastes, and then last week we went through uh, Proverbs. And then today we'll be going into the book of Job. Uh, if you flip to the next slide, the first week, uh, Rick put up this um, framework for the Bible. And so this is really helpful for me, and I think it's, it's helpful for us as we consider uh, what are these wisdom literature books that we're studying, and how do they fit within the grand scheme of the entire Bible. And so just as a reminder, there is an Old Covenant or Old Testament, and a New Covenant, a New Testament. Uh, and within those, there is uh, the establishment of the covenant. So for the Old Testament, that would be the law, the first five books of the Bible. For the Gospels, it's the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, there is a covenant history. So uh, how did this covenant actually play itself out with the people uh, of that covenant? And so for the, the nation of Israel, that was displayed through the prophets and some of those Old Testament books, and for the New Testament in the book of Acts. And then beyond that, there is, uh, okay, so what does this mean in terms of ap application of this testament to my life? And so you see that in the Old Testament in the writings and in the New Testament in the epistles. And then all of this is bookended by two chapters on either end of the Bible. Genesis 1 and 2 talks about the creation. Revelation chapters 21 and 22 talk about this new creation. And then everything in between deals with uh, corruption of sin um, our struggle with that, but also the redemption that comes from God through Christ to us. And so today we're hanging up out in that upper right-hand corner, uh, taking a look at the book of Job. And uh, if you recall, uh, you can flip the slide, uh, a couple weeks ago, Rick was talking about Ecclesiastes and uh, this wisdom that comes from God. And the book itself was written by Solomon under inspiration of the Holy Spirit to... Um, well, it, it really is him in a fairly uh, depressing state walking through uh, this wisdom. Um, and Solomon was a guy who had great wealth, and he was a king, and he had uh, pleasure and entertainment and everything that you could want. And yet in this book, he reminds us that, that this life and the things therein are a smoke. They're like a vapor. Um, and so when you try to grab them, they're, they're actually quick and fleeting, and they eventually go away. And so there is wisdom, Rick reminded us, um, from that book that uh, as much as we can um, become granular and start focusing on uh, the details of everyday life, there's a story that is much bigger than that. And we are reminded in that book that, that God has a redeeming story for humanity that we see throughout the rest of Scripture. And so we are wise to take that into account um, and live accordingly. 
last week, Jonathan jumped into the book of Proverbs, and uh, he actually covered a lot of great wisdom with us. I, I, <laughs> I was struggling, frankly, when we were preparing for this to, to anticipate how he would effectively teach through Proverbs because there's so much in there. Um, but he did a really beautiful job. Um, but one of the things that stood out to me uh, from what Jonathan had shared from the book of Proverbs is that wisdom is personified in, in the book of Proverbs. And so we see that in female form, uh, as he shared last week. But also the term wisdom uh, is not just kind of good ideas or the right thinking, but wisdom itself is found in God. He is the embodiment of wisdom. And so if we are to seek wisdom, as the book of Proverbs exhorts us to do, it's actually exhorting us to seek after, to crave, to go deeper in union with God, because he is wisdom. So this week, uh, we get into the book of Job, and um, I've really enjoyed, frankly, uh, spending a little extra time in Job the last few weeks, and I'm hopeful that uh, we will be blessed this morning as we take a look at what the Lord has shown us. But it deals with wisdom under the sovereignty of God, and uh, not just wisdom under the sovereignty of God, but the real struggle with the reality that God is sovereign, and yet this life comes with lots of ups and downs. And um, how are we to understand God's justice, God's kindness, God's sovereignty in light of those ups and downs? And we, we specifically look at the life of Job as, as an example for us. So uh, before I talk about Job, what comes to mind when you think about the book of Job? What are some things that immediately come to mind for you? Suffering, Suffering. okay. Definitely. What else? God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. Good. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, so as we'll, we'll talk about, there was a whole other layer of things that were going on that Job just had no clue about. And in fact, he spends the bulk of the book trying to figure out uh, with a few of his friends. What else? Mourning. Yeah. Yeah. So... Um, the reality of suffering, what we will talk about is that Job um, goes through this immense trial as, as the result of kind of this courtroom scene in heaven um, and goes through just kind of as much suffering as I could possibly imagine here on earth. Um, so we'll talk about that too. Good, anything else? Yeah, I, I think actually we're done. That was, <laughs> that was, that was great. We covered it. Um, yeah, so, so, so those, are, those are definitely uh, major themes, and we'll, we'll clue into that as we go. Um, Job is likely the oldest book of the Bible, so while it doesn't start first, as, as you open your Bible it, on page one, uh, it is likely the oldest book of the Bible. Uh, it seems intentionally focused on the message uh, rather than the historical context. So um, Job is from the land of Uz. Uh, Uz is distant from ancient Israel. Uh, Job himself is not an Israelite, uh, nor are any of the human characters uh, in this book. Um, and we don't actually even know who wrote the book of Job. And so it, it's almost as if God intentionally leaves that unknown or vague or almost intangible to us so that we could really press into the suffering of Job, the struggle that he's having in relation to his relationship with God as a result. Um, the wisdom is related to God's unsearchable sovereignty, justice, and kindness through the story of Job's suffering, searching, and blessing. Uh, and then 
what we'll find is that there's this healthy tension throughout the book between the wisdom of this book, which is God is wise, God is just, God is good, uh, we can trust him, and yet knowing those things and actually being able to embrace those things in the midst of suffering can be hard. And this book doesn't run away from that. It actually embraces that and affirms that uh, by the end. So um, as we look at the outline of the book, uh, it starts with a prologue, uh, the courtroom setting that we'll talk about in just a moment that lays the groundwork for who is Job, what kind of suffering is he going through. Um, Job 3 through 37 is a debate of God's justice and Job's suffering. It's essentially the best thinking of this ancient culture around why is Job suffering and what does that imply about God. And then Job 38 through 41 is God's response, uh, which which is powerful and awesome. Uh, And then Job 42 is the epilogue. And so uh, we will study it accordingly. Um, So Job 1 and 2, the prologue, uh, there's an intro to Job. Uh, Job is described by the book and then by God uh, himself as godly. Uh, He's wealthy. He's blessed. He has lots of of cattle. Uh, He has seven children, just an an abundance of wealth. Um, And we see that he's also a godly man. So he does things um, like when his kids go out to have feasts, just in case they sin, he would go and make sacrifice and and, uh, intercede on their behalf. Um, so he's an extremely God-fearing, godly man. And in fact, God will, will say himself to Satan uh, that he is a godly, uh, godly man. Um, we see this court scene in heaven. There, there are a couple key characters there. One is God on his throne who's affirming Job uh, as, as godly. And then Satan, um, the term Satan or the Satan is the accuser. He's like a prosecuting attorney. And we'll see how that plays itself out with Job. Um, And he accuses Job of only fearing God and following God because of God's protection and blessing. And there are a couple rounds of this. So one is saying, Job has been blessed, you've protected him, but if you remove all of that wealth, if you take away his kids, um, if you allow him to be kind of left without all of those things, that blessing and that protection, then he will curse you uh, to your face. And then Job doesn't do that. And then there's a second round of Satan accusing Job and saying, yeah, but if you actually afflict his body, uh, then he will curse you to your face and turn away from you. So Satan's accusation is that Job is just, just worshiping you and following you and fearing you because of the way you blessed and protected him. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to read uh, from my Bible a portion of that court scene just so we have some context. It says, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. So sons of God, just think kind of an angelic court scene. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth? a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. 
And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So God twice gives Satan authority to afflict Job. Uh, Initially, it comes through the wiping out, the stealing and pillaging of his servants and his wealth. Um, And also uh, just natural, like a whirlwind, uh, consuming the house where his children are feasting. And so they all die. And so Job receives news of all of these things. Um, And then he... uh, still doesn't turn away from, from the Lord. And there's a second wave where the Lord says, similarly, have you considered my servant Job in this court scene? And Satan says, well, if you afflict his body, his flesh, um, take away his health and well-being, then he will curse you to your, to your face. And God gives Satan permission again to afflict Job in a really awful way where he's got sores and uh, all over his body. And we find Job ultimately sitting kind of on a, on a pile of dung scraping off these sores with some pottery. And um, the question that, of course, happens, so we've got all of these things happening in the spiritual realm. Job has no clue that they're happening. And the question that immediately comes to mind is, why? Why Why would God allow this godly man to suffer in this kind of way? Um, And before we go any further, uh, I just want to acknowledge um, suffering is real, and it is painful, and when you look at what happened to Job, it's easy just to read through it and go, okay, he lost his wealth, and people stole uh, all of his cattle, and his kids all died in one fatal event, Um, and his his health was taken from him, so there's this this tremendous uh, physical discomfort, and and then his wife comes and says, why don't you just curse God and die? And so she's not particularly helpful to him. Um, it's that, that side of marriage that sometimes happens that, uh, <laughs> that isn't quite as pleasant as, uh, as what we normally like to talk about. Um, but it's just reality, right? This is a struggle. And um, I can't even imagine some of the things that Job had to go through. And so this is not just a, a biblical narrative, um, but this is... Think of this stuff as like actually happening to someone within our body. And the kind of hurt and pain and struggle that this would create. Um, and so I just want to acknowledge that because all of us at various times go through varying degrees of pain and suffering. And this book does not shy away from that, um, it, but it actually makes it really prominent up front. And then the rest of the book is spent going through how does Job wrestle with the reality of this suffering? Next slide. So the questions behind the question, why is this happening to Job, are things like, is God really just? Is God kind? Is he good? Uh, And can we ultimately trust him? And how are we to understand these things in light of suffering in Job's life, but also in light of suffering in our lives, within our church, uh, around us in this world? Um, There's just some some horribly um, awful (laughs) things that happen in this life and in this world. Um, And there will be a day in new creation where those things will be um, completely resolved and God will make all things good and right. Uh, But we live in a day and an age where that's not the case. And so how are we to understand those things? And the hard part for me is, of course, in church, we're going to say, yes, God is just. Yes, God is good. And yes, we can trust him. 
But what I love about this book is that it doesn't just leave it there. Uh, it, it really takes us in deep for chapters and chapters and chapters to the reality of what Job and his friends are trying to resolve, which is, I can't really embrace this. So I liken this to, uh, Rick just mentioned Sarah's surgery. Right now she's in a state where she has to trust me for a lot of the care. Um, She has to trust me to feed the kids, which is probably misplaced trust. (laughs) But but she she has to rely upon me. Um, And she might have, she might tell you that she trusts me, which she does, um, but the proof is in the pudding, right? So when it's actually time to put her care, to put uh, our kids' care into my hands, uh, there's a, an added level of substance added to that trust, right? It becomes real. Um, or if we were to do a trust fall and I was to say, um, hey, Tony, come up here and stand on this table and fall and Rick and I will catch you. <laughs> Okay. Uh, probably not going to happen, um, and, it, and it might might tell you a little bit about where where Tony's trust lies in, in Rick and I. Um, <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. So yeah, tr- trust is based not just on our, our intent or our goodness, but our capability, right? And so um, so trust in God is the same way. And so we can sit in church and we can read theology and we can even affirm for one another that yes, God is just, God is good, and we can trust him. Um, But it becomes real when we leave this place and we go about everyday life. And there is a place for us to affirm who God is, and it it, it encourages us, and we we ought to remind each other in that. Uh, But also, we we need to be um, empathetic to the fact that when people are going through suffering, they need more than just uh, regurgitated Bible verses that tell them that God is just, God is kind, and they can trust him. So uh, Job is probably most known for this verse, Job 2.21, and it says, And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And uh, when I think about this book, this is the verse that comes to mind for me. And... Um, the song is, is beautiful and true, uh, but what I want us to know is that this is not just a book that says we need to be like that. Uh, eventually, Job gets back to a place of humility and trust of the Lord, but he really does spend the bulk of the book wrestling with this and struggling with it. And actually, that, I think, is, is part of the central theme of the book of Job, not just, yes, this is the place where we ought to land in terms of our relationship with God, but that, um, but that there is a wrestling and a struggling that God actually affirms at the end of this book uh, that Job goes through. So the second section is Job and his friends trying to figure this thing out. Uh, and so again, uh, think of this as kind of like the best thinkers of the day trying to figure out what is going on uh, with Job's suffering and with God's righteousness and judgment. Um, so his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zohar, um, the flow of these next few chapters is basically cyclical. Uh, and so what, it, what happens is um, Eliphaz will say something about why he thinks Job is going through the suffering, and then Job will respond. And then Bildad will say something, and then Job will respond. And then Zohar will say something, and Job will respond. And you go through three cycles of that over these chapters. Um, 
But the general assumption about justice that these people have is that good, right, and just living will lead to reward and success, and bad, dumb, evil living will lead to punishment and suffering. And so we see that as kind of the formula that these guys are thinking through. And if we're honest, I think sometimes we can apply that same formula, whether it's to our kids uh, or when we think about why things are happening um, around us and in our lives, we tend to, to maybe gravitate there, and we'll see that there's, there's a lot more to it than that. Um, so Job uses that formula, and he says, well, I know that I'm just. Like, I'm, I, I think I'm, I'm sincerely godly. Um, he's suffering, and therefore, because he is suffering, he thinks it is unjust, and God himself either must be unjust or incompetent in applying his justice, um, but something must be wrong with God. The three friends, on the other hand, take this formula, and they say, well, no, 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 that's not right, because we know that God is just, and we believe that his justice is, is rightly and appropriately applied to this world, and you are suffering, so Job, there must actually be something wrong with you. And so they start um, not just uh, accusing Job of doing something secretly wrong, but then they start to actually develop these ideas of what he must be doing <laughs> to cause this pain and this suffering. And then there's a fourth friend that comes in at the very end of this section, uh, Elihu, and he's this, this really young, pretty arrogant uh, guy who comes in and says, you're right, friends, that God is just and that Job is suffering, but there has to be some other reason that's happening here. Uh, and some of the reasons he gives are, are tied to uh, maybe it's, it's a warning so that you don't sin in the future, or maybe it's character building, but there's got to be some other reason, and God, God's way bigger than all of this. Uh, and he rebukes the friends, and he rebukes Job, and that's the last we see of Elihu. In Job 31-35, uh, Job actually calls out God, and I'll just read that to you. He says, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here's my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. So Job goes from blessed be the name of the Lord in good or bad, whatever, blessed be the name of the Lord, to at the end of all of this wrestling with this issue, he says, you know what, God? I'm going to sign my defense, and you owe me an answer. <laughs> and so he, he's actually calling out God at the end of this section. The next section is God's response. <laughs> and so God's response is uh, powerful, and I'll just read the beginning of it to you, and then we'll get into kind of what it says thematically. But in uh, Job 38, starting in verse 1, it says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. <laughs> okay, get ready, prepare for this. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk, and who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment, and thick darkness its swaddled band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come, and no farther, and here shall you, your proud waves be stayed. So, so this is just the beginning, but God starts talking about 
creation, the cosmos, and just how um, awesome and complex it is, both in its origin, where it came from, from God in creation, uh, and then also just like things like telling the waves where they can stop. <laughs> Job, what do, what do you know about that um, and, and how that, that, that happens? And he goes on and he talks about animal life and just the, the beauty and the complexity of all of that. Um, and he gives this you know, several chapter tour of all of these things, basically telling Job like, hey, this, this creation and everything around it is way bigger than you could possibly fathom. And therefore, the application by justice within that creation is similarly way bigger than you could possibly comprehend. Um, <laughs> in the midst of this, he actually asked Job, essentially, if Job wants to give it a shot at applying justice throughout the universe. So, so for every bad thing, um, holding people accountable and, and, and applying justice as judge over the universe. Uh, he, he describes these two uh, animals, the behemoth and the leviathan. And some people think that they're speaking of a, like a hippo and a crocodile. Um, but more realistically, what we do know is that these, these animals are massive and powerful and incredible, and they come up elsewhere in Scripture. Um, but they're symbols of both beauty and power, but also disorder and danger. And so it's not so clean-cut as to say, um, you know, look at this one animal, and it's either this or that. But it's actually both beautiful and complex and powerful, but also potentially dangerous and disorderly. Um, and so God almost brags on these two animals. Like, look at these two as examples of how beautiful and complex my creation is. Um, and so the point is that God's creation and the applied justice therein are just way, way bigger than Job or his friends or you and I can, can truly understand or comprehend with our own best thinking. And so I, I mentioned the assumption at the beginning, which was that formula for justice, which was good, right, just gets reward and success. Bad, dumb, sinful leads to penalty um, and suffering. And beneath that assumption that Job and his friends have about their understanding of justice is the second assumption that says that they have enough wisdom and perspective to actually draw conclusions about whether God is just and whether his application of that justice is right in the world. And so this is one of the, the fundamental learnings as we talk about wisdom literature from this book. Uh, and that is um, there is a wisdom in understanding our limited perspective. And like Job, we can see life uh, and we can try to read all of the uh, variables and the details and the circumstances around us and put, put it together like a puzzle. Um, but our best thinking is so limited and finite. And God's thinking and understanding is so much greater and bigger uh, than ours. And so like Job or his friends, if we go down this path of thinking in our pride that we can figure these things out, then it, it can tend toward oversimplification. So if one of us is going through suffering, we just go, well, there, God is just, um, you're suffering, so you must have done something wrong, right? That, that's not actually the right answer. Um, or God is just, you're suffering, and so there's got to be some other answer and, that we can figure out. Um, or, wait, no, I'm just and suffering, so there must be something wrong with God. And we start drawing conclusions and accusing God of being wrong 
Uh, and all of these things, unfortunately, create a distance, a separation between us and our understanding of who God is. And as we talk about all the time, uh, as the church family here at Colossae, um, this is all about union with God and really knowing him. And so this ancient uh, book of wisdom literature is calling us to that understanding um, that God is way bigger than we can know. So then it, it ends in Job chapter 42. And uh, just in brief, Job, after, after being corrected by God, and God corrects those he loves, uh, I've heard people say, no, God doesn't really um, correct um, or chasten Job. But it comes across when you read it as pretty strong. I mean, it, it's pretty strong language. And God chastens those that he loves, and he corrects them to, to bring them to this right spot. And, and Job humbly repents in response to that. God actually calls out the three friends and says, you guys got it all wrong. You need to go um, make sacrifice, and actually Job is going to pray for you, and then, then I'll receive you again. Um, but he corrects the three friends, but he actually affirms Job which is interesting because Job 2 has been going through this book going, God, you're a bully, or um, God, you're incompetent. And he's making these big claims about God. And so we know that not everything in the book that Job says is really true. And yet, at the end of the book, uh, God really affirms Job. And um, the way he comes to God with uh, authenticity, just going, God, I'm just going to lay out to you where I'm at. (laughs) I'm confused and I'm frustrated, and I don't know if I can trust you. And God actually affirms that, which is it's just, again, if I was going to say um, what is, is kind of the major theme of this book, it's that. It's that God actually embraces the fact that Job has been doing this wrestling, this struggling. And rather than have him just stay in the spot where he's trying to figure it out by himself or with his friends, God wants the end result to be Job to come to him uh, directly, and even though Job's calling him out, saying, you owe me an answer, I've signed my defense, God graciously uh, corrects him and receives him. And then what we find at the end of this book is that just for a totally undeserved reason, God restores Job twofold. His, his kids are made alive again. His wealth is double what he had before. And God shows him kindness. And so just like Job did not deserve the suffering at the beginning of the book and throughout the book, Job also didn't necessarily do anything to deserve twofold the blessing. And yet God just demonstrates his goodness and his kindness and his grace at the end of this book, and then it's done. So what are we to take from this book? Um, God, God is just, and uh, his justice is beyond our ability to necessarily piece together. And so what it does is it forces us into this equation of going, well, if we can't put all of the pieces together and add it up in a very scientific way to know that God is just, there is something in there that requires trust. And so are we okay as people just going, okay, you know what, my perspective and our perspective is, is just insufficient. But there is one who was there when he created the heavens and the earth. There is one who, who knows uh, why the waves stop where they stop and who was there when the cosmos were, were created. And so I am just going to, in humility, acknowledge that, that God is bigger and greater and wiser. Um, and so as this book,
book lays this foundation for ancient wisdom, uh, it's, it's really leading us to that spot of humility and awe as it relates to God. And if you recall the two previous weeks, uh, in Ecclesiastes, the, the conclusion was fear God or, or revere God and keep his commands and, and follow his way. And so there was this theme even there of going, have an awe of who God is, that he is, he is majestic and huge and submit to his will and follow him. And then last week in Proverbs, we, we learned that the fear or reverence of, of God is the beginning of wisdom. And so again, it's going, boy, there's something about God being so huge and awesome and, and beyond our ability to comprehend that should cause us to be in awe and worship him. And so Job, again, leads us to that conclusion of, of God is mighty and awesome and um, we can put our trust in him. But also God is kind and gracious. So I told you again, at the end, he, he receives Job and actually affirms that Job came to him in his brokenness and his hurt. Um, and he does so for us as well. And then he just blesses him graciously. And then God uh, invites us to come to him in our confusion and hurt. And then um, trust in God's justice and goodness is the basis for intimacy. And so uh, I gave the example of Sarah, and, and you know, while she's going through her surgery and recovering, there is an implicit trust that must be put into real-life action, right? It actually has to manifest itself um, toward me, um, that, she tr- that she trusts that I have her best interests in mind, that I'm fair, that I will, I will do what's best to care for her and for the kids. Um, but there's probably no greater arena for trust than intimacy, right? And w- without getting into details, um, there, there's just a, a closeness, there's a, a vulnerability, there's a trust that happens with, when we are intimate as people, but certainly uh, spiritually in our relationship with God as we are called to him to have intimate relationship with him, to abide in his love and to respond with love back to him and then to follow him as he leads us. Um, Trust is critical to that. And so these, these books like Job in the Old Testament are laying the foundation for us of in order to get to that point of that closeness with God that, that he desires um, and that he has called us into as the church, um, we must first wrestle with this issue of trust. And where there is a lack of trust or where we are confused because our lives are in disorder uh, and we can't figure them all out, he actually encourages us to come just as we are to him and ask him for wisdom because as Jonathan shared with us, God is wisdom personified. So lastly, uh, as we wrap up the study on, on wisdom literature, I, I just wanted to take a moment and consider God's justice in light of the cross. And so the formula that Job and his friends used for justice is that the good, the right, the just um, will, will inherit reward and success. The bad, dumb, sinful will, will have penalty and suffering. And at the cross, we see that Jesus, who was perfect, who was good, righteous, sinless, um, he hung on the cross and he suffered and he died uh, undeservingly. And so our, our comprehension of justice is just kind of blown away by the fact that this perfect human being, God became human, um, 
was inflicted upon the cross for us. And those of us who are rejecting him, so humans who actually put him on the cross and rejected him and crucified him, we actually killed God. And if you think of that, the weight of that, and go, man, we deserved the ultimate penalty and suffering for that rebellion. And yet, through Christ, we are given reward and success. And so what this does for me is it gives me a small taste of, of all of those truths that we just learned, which is God's justice is way bigger than we can fathom. And, and merged with his kindness and his grace, we see this collision, but this beautiful collision of these things at the foot of the cross, where Christ took upon himself our suffering and our pain that we deserved, and we were given his reward and given his spirit that we might actually effectively walk with and follow God in, in beautiful communion. And he calls us to that place in the midst of our frustration, in the midst of our confusion, in the midst of our wrestling with the suffering that goes on in our lives and in this world. And he says, come, come to me, and I will give you rest. And uh, so as we do every week, we are going to do that at the table of communions. We are going to remember the work of the cross, the fact that God has called us into um, beautiful, intimate union with himself and therefore with one another. Um, and he has done so by the work of Christ on the cross, the shedding of his blood, his body that was broken for us undeservedly, and yet it was an execution of God's justice and his grace. And his blood that was shed for us that ushers us into this state of being able to uh, know him and love him and be known by him and be loved by him. And our lives are a worshipful response to this union we have with God uh, because of his wisdom, because of his justice, and because of his kindness and grace. Amen? God, we just acknowledge in light of your word that you are awesome that you are so wise and, and huge. And we look at your creation and just the way things were made, the way that things function um, beyond our ability to really comprehend or figure out. And we just stand in awe of you now. Uh, you're, you're awesome, and we acknowledge that, that your awesomeness is beyond our ability to understand. And yet, because of that, you are worthy of our worship. We acknowledge that you are kind and good, that you sent your son to prove your love to the world and to usher us into this relationship with you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we remember that now. I pray for us that we wouldn't just go through this as routine, but that we would truly just, um, as a husband and a wife, experience uh, true deep intimacy. Um, I, I pray that this moment, this time that we spend in worshiping you through singing and worshiping you at the table of communion, would be just like that for our souls. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do a work, that you would minister to your body now uh, as, we, as we sing these songs to you, as we respond um, to who you are and what you've done for us. We praise you. You are awesome. In Jesus' name, amen. Awesome. So... Um...